So I want to remind us of the context of what's going on. We're in the book of Galatians here. And uh, Paul has been doing something with this group of people. You remember this this book of Galatians is really interesting because uh, for some people, this is their favorite epistle. This is their favorite letter in the New Testament because this is like the freedom fighter uh, this is this is the one that sets you free. This is the Magna Carta. This is the one that says you're free, you're free, you're free, you're free. However, what's interesting about that is that we love it because it talks about freedom, but it's the harshest of all of the letters at the same time. The language that's used in it is so harsh and so militant and so fiery. Um, and so depending on what side of that thing we're on, whether we're receiving the brunt, I mean, it, it can be extremely convicting. Um, but it's also uh, that the assurance that we can be set free. Um, and so Paul, as uh, you may remember, is dealing with the churches, the congregations that are all over the region of Galatia. It's this big region, and there's these local congregations in the different towns. And he's addressing all these different congregations that have the same basic problem going on. And the reason they have the same basic problem going on is because there's false teachers who are coming and are getting them to think the wrong way. And so Paul, in order to address that, he's like a, a dad or a mom who cares so much about his kids and he wants them to think the right way so that they live the right way so that they're held in God's arms doing the right thing. And just like any parent wants their child to, to do well, so you've got to think right if you're going to do well. That's what Paul is doing with these churches. So he's, he's, he's uh, desperate to make sure that they understand the truth so that they live the right way. And in doing that, he has to use some harsh tones with them. And, uh, and he also has to remind them of his own authority by which he speaks into their life. So the last few weeks, what we've been talking about is in the first couple of chapters, Paul's been establishing his own authority among them and saying, this is why you should be listening to me and not listening to all those bozos who are leading you astray. Okay, and that's essentially what's been happening. And then he outlines why they should be listening to him. And he gives three main reasons. One, because he said, the message I heard that I gave to you, I heard directly from God. I didn't hear it from other people. This wasn't my idea. I heard it directly from God. And he said, and for like three years and then another 14 years, I went on my own, apart from the other apostles, apart from the people who walked with Jesus and all that. And I just went in the desert and learned from God. And then I went and spoke and brought other people to the knowledge of Christ. And then I went back to the apostles. And after all that time, it turns out that the things that God had spoken to me are the exact same things that he had spoken to them. So there's validation over the fact I heard directly from God. Then there was validation over the fact that I heard from God. And then his third proof of his authority is that even when the the chief apostle, the first apostle, the very first one, Peter himself, got out of line, I was the one to correct him. So if you want to trust someone about what it is I'm about to say, you need to trust me. Not only did I plant those churches, these churches, not only did I start bringing the gospel to you initially, I've heard from God, it's validated that it's the real gospel, and I confronted even the primary apostle when he got out of line. And in that moment, he kind of transitions into our passage now, which is the second point of the letter, which is that he wants to remind them of what the real gospel is. What the, and the gospel just means the good news of God. 
And he wants to remind them what God's good news to them actually is. And he transitions because in his confrontation of Peter, when Paul is reminding them about the fact that he had to confront Peter, he gives them a little bit of the text of his conversation. He kind of quotes his conversation that he had with Peter. And I'm going to read two verses from chapter 2 to, remi- to, to share. This is in his conversation with Peter. He's going off on Peter about how he's been uh, living inappropriately by buddying up to the Jews and not being nice to the Gentiles because he's stuck in this false theology. And uh, so he gets to verse 15 in chapter 2 in his conversation with Peter as he's quoting himself in his own conversation. And he says, we ourselves, picture Paul saying this to Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know, this is him saying to Peter, Peter, you and I know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. That means you're not made right by the things that you do, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You are not made right by the things that you do, Peter. You and I both know this. We're made right by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so he's, he's telling them, this is what I said to Peter. I stood up in front of everyone and I said, Peter, you're acting like there's more holy people because there's these group of people who are more holy because they do such and such. And I'm telling you, you're living a lie. You're preaching the gospel, but you're living a lie because you're acting like these people are more holy than these people when we both know that even though we're Jews, the only way that we're actually justified is not by submitting to the law that God gave. The only way we're okay with God is because we trust what Jesus has done for us. And that sets him up now to transition from that conversation of establishing his authority and he turns his gaze back toward the Galatian church and he's about to set them straight about what they believe. And his first words are, you stupid Galatians. That word, some of you have a a translation that says stupid. Some of you have a translation that says foolish. It depends on which translation you're doing. You foolish Galatians or you stupid Galatians. And He is not trying to be demeaning in the sense, what he's actually trying to say is, you're not using your thinker. You are completely and totally foolish, illogical, dumb, stupid right now about this whole situation. You're not thinking. You're not thinking. You are being led astray because you're losing frame of reference on the basics of the gospel. And he says, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? Who has messed with your head and brainwashed you and somehow got you to start thinking a different way? He's like, it's so illogical what's happening that you must be under some sort of like weird spiritual curse that's allowing you to think this way. Because why in the world would you ever want to think the way that you're thinking right? That's what he's saying to him. And he's saying, you're foolish. Come on, this is simple. It's basic. And this is, this is like when you uh, picture, I want you to picture a parent who's exhausted 
because they're seeing their child living in a way that's harming themselves. And it's because they're thinking in a way that isn't helpful. And they're finally like, what are you thinking? I don't understand. I don't understand why you would want life to go this way or why you would think this way. I don't know why you are listening to those people who don't care about you at all. Picture some, a child who's under deep peer pressure and doing things that are wildly inappropriate, hurting themselves and all that. And the parent is saying, why do you care at all what those people think? They don't care about you. They don't like you. They don't, like none of it matters. Th- that's kind of what's happening with Paul right now. And he's saying, what are you thinking? Why, this isn't leading to your good or to your health or anything positive. Like, life can be great for you, but this isn't working out for you. Why are you thinking this way? The essence of what had happened, as a reminder for those who who might not have heard this part, the essence of what's happening is is these teachers who have come in and started to teach false doctrine have said, okay, you came to Christ by what Christ has done for you. He invited you in free of charge and gave you a relationship. But now there's this subtle teaching that's like, you're a little more holy if you start to do such and such. So the law that was in existence, if you trust Jesus, that's great. Jesus has you. But then kind of like you're a little more holy and you grow in your faith. So Jesus got you entrance into a relationship with God, but you become more holy now when you start to obey the law. And this kind of thinking is very, very subtle and messes with all of our heads. This isn't just, I mean, it had to be extremely difficult for Jews who understood their own identity, their national identity, their relationship with God, all in terms of the law. And now they have the freedom of grace in Jesus where they don't have to obey the law or submit to the law. And we're not talking about the law of the government. We're talking about the law of God, you know, that was revealed through Moses, the Mosaic law. And they could let go of that now because their relationship with God wasn't defined by the law anymore. Their relationship with God was defined by the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and said, anyone who wants to trust me has free access to me. And so they live in a place of grace and an open freedom and connection with God. But it must have been very difficult for them to let go of their identity as the people of God that was defined by these rules. And they had to let go of that. But what subtly is happening now is these Gentiles who weren't a part of that relationship with God have now been brought in by the grace of God. And the Jews who still kind of want the old school religion uh, speak into this thing, they come back and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's cool that you guys are in now if you really want to be good. If you want to take it to another level, then you'll go back and do such and such as well. Have you ever noticed that when someone first enters into a relationship with God, and they start to experience God and know God. They just get fired up. People are like, holy cow, I didn't know that I could have a living, dynamic relationship with the God who created me, who's the God of the universe, who's actually alive, who came out of the grave in the person of Jesus. And his spirit can indwell my heart, and I can be with other people who know how to actually have conversation with God 
in prayer. This is awesome, and people get excited, and they want to tell other people, but then there's always this thing when they get connected to church, which is a very difficult thing, which is that, okay, that's cool that you have a relationship with God, and there's always this tension of one is the really good part of, like, discipling, which means, like, knowing the Word of God more and learning more about God and excited, but then there's this other thing of, like, old-school religion that's, like, the whole, like, yeah, but if you love God, then you'll do this and this and this, and all of a sudden, we're like, whoa, I thought I was just in a relationship with God and then there's like these other things that really have to do with more with human tradition than they have to do with connection with God. And it's very easy for people to get burdened by things that aren't actually the gospel, that aren't actually freedom. So in order for Paul to disassemble this mentality that's going on, he goes into a line of logic, okay? And his first line of logic is really interesting. What he says is the Mosaic law was this contract, so to speak. It was a covenant. But what it was, was these rules, you know, these laws that God set up. He said, but before Moses, there was a guy who God called out, and his name was Abraham. And when God called him out, there was no law. All he said was, I'm going to bless the whole earth through you. Just trust me. And he said, the idea of the gospel that God loves you and you just have to trust him came around long before there was law. Because Abraham is the great-great-great-great-grandfather or whatever of all the Jews. And so before there was a Mosaic law, before there was Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and all of those things, there was just one guy who was living in a town in Ur, and God came to him and said, I love you, trust me. And he said that existed before the law. So if you're going to say that the law is the the whole kit and caboodle and that that's the big deal and that that's the, the, the highest form of spirituality, then you're forgetting that before the law was Abraham and after the law is Jesus. Okay, and so this, this is just this like other little thing in here, the law. And he's trying to frame that and say, you guys think that's the old tradition. You need to go back a little further and remember that you're children of Abraham. And then what he says is, to those of you who are Gentiles, who were never Jews, and who were never part of that whole thing with the nation of Israel and all the laws and everything, he's like, I want to tell you that the children of Abraham are not just the physical descendants, and it's not the people who obey the law, it's the people who have faith the way Abraham had faith. And if you trust God the way Abraham trusted God, then you too can have a relationship with God. That's pretty awesome. You get to be called a child of Abraham. All right, so their relationship with the law, the people had a relationship with the law, but the relationship with the law was like a contract. You can't really have a relationship with the law. They had a relationship with God, but their relationship with God was distant. You remember, even on Mount Sinai, God said, as they were coming to Mount Sinai, as he was writing the Ten Commandments down, he said, don't let them get too close to the mountain or or they'll get smote, you know? And uh, the law was distant. They, they could have a relationship with the law day in and day out. They could try to obey the law and do what the law told them to, but their relationship with God was distant. God was behind the holy of holies in a temple, and we tried to do what he told us to do, and when we did things wrong, we would offer a sacrifice, but God stayed behind the veil, and with, there was kind of a distance between us and God. So there was a covenant with God, a relationship with God, but it was a very distant one. There was a relationship with the law that was a real close relationship with the law, but that was just a contract of me trying to obey the law and then me getting blessed if I do obey the law. Now, this is where 
I want you to see two things that, that uh, Paul talks about, two words that he uses to describe the law. Okay, first is down in, uh, in verse 19. If you look in uh, chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Why then the law? So with all that, if Abraham had faith and Jesus is going to come, well, then why was there the law? And he says, it was added because of transgressions. Okay, transgressions means this is the way it was supposed to go, and I went out of the line. When we went out of line, God put the law in place. Okay, and it says it was because of transgressions that the law was put in place. Okay, um, uh, lost my place here. Oh, yeah, okay. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, as it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. All right, this is a little deep here for a second, okay? We're going to bring this real down to practical reality in a couple minutes. What it's saying is the law was put in place because God's children had gotten out of line, so he's putting the law in place. And he said, and that was put in place by angels, and angels are called the ministers of God. And he said the law was to be an intermediary. Do you know what an intermediary is? It's kind of like a mediator, one who goes between two people. And he says that's what the law was. So this is what I want you to picture. When the parent is having a struggle with that child, and the parent, it gets so bad that the parent has to kick the kid out of the house. Well, the parent doesn't want the child to be in bad shape or things to get worse. It's always that struggle when it's like if the child's in a real bad way and they've got to keep the rules of the house, you know, and there has to be consequences, and yet they don't want the child to just completely go. So what do they do? They send them to the uncle's house, okay, or the aunt's house. And when they're at the uncle or aunt's house, then the uncle or aunt, their relationship is like, okay, we're not your parent but we have our own rules of the house. And since there isn't the whole like parent-child dynamic, it might be a little easier over there. Like do what you want within these boundaries, you know? And the dynamic of like parent-child isn't as comp- is a lot more complicated than, than that relationship. And so what he's saying is the intermediary is, he said there was transgressions, the, the people of God got out of line, so we put the law in place as here's basic things to keep you in line until we're able to put everything back to the way it's supposed to be. Which gives us another word that he uses here. And depending on your translation, it says either a guardian or a tutor. So look down at verse 23. It says, Now faith, now before faith came, we were captive under the law. We were imprisoned. It says imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Your translation might say a tutor. What Mike was reading said tutor. It might say tutor or guardian. The other translation of that same word could be guide. As a matter of fact, Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians when he says, you have many, many guides but you don't have many fathers. And he says, there's some people who really care about you, who are here with you, who are in deep covenantal relationship with you, fathers, but then there's those who just kind of help teach you and guide you. They're your guides, your guardians, your mentors. And what this word actually is, is it's like a legal guardian. 
you know, and, but there's actually a, there's actually, that's probably a little bit too strong, but it's a parental sort of figure, but it's not a parent. And there was actually this thing in the, in the context when this is written, there was this person called the guardian. And what that person's job was, they took the male, the, the male children of the family, and of course, it was a very different world back then. And so the male children who were being trained up to do the work and all of that, and these guardians, their job what their job was is to, to take the, these kids, these boys, to take them back and forth to school and make sure that they were protected and to watch the kids while they were playing and to make sure they were safe. And they were basically like the babysitters for these boys to make sure they're getting their work done and they're not getting in too much trouble. And what we are told in this passage, what Paul says is he says, the reason the law was put in place was to be your babysitter. It was to be your babysitter or your tutor or your guide. And ultimately, it's supposed to lead you back into a relationship with your parent, which is God. But for now, since you're in a state of rebellion, you need to be protected. And so you're going to go your way and you're going to do your thing and you're going to live the way you want to live. But I'm going to put the law in place in order to protect you in the meantime so that when you ultimately are healed and brought back home, you won't have fallen too far. That's the point of the law. That's the whole point of the law. Now here, Jen, after graduating, for, well, Jen, when we were in Chicago, there was these uh, people from all over Chicago, if they wanted help with basic things around the school, around the, their house or whatever, they would uh, send information to our school and would put job postings out there and you could find all sorts of work around Chicago from people who needed help from college students and they would pay them what they believe to be like uh, you know slave labor rates what we believe to be like big money you know and uh, and they would uh, acquire help from us Jen started babysitting while she was at school and uh, the one family who she started babysitting with eventually when she graduated from school became a nanny for this family Okay, and when she became a nanny for this family, she would uh, hung out with these kids all the time, like these kids all the time. And the, and the older child in particular hung out with all the time. When it came time for Jen to move and move back to Pennsylvania, you can imagine for that child, that's a pretty traumatic moment, right? And as a matter of fact, it was an extremely traumatic moment for that child. Because what can happen is, is as awesome as it can be to be a babysitter and as awesome as it can be to be a nanny and those things can be great or whatever, there's also a confusion that can start to take place. When you're spending all your time with this person, you know, then what about mom and dad? The relationship with my parent versus the relationship with the person I'm spending all this time with. What happened for the people of Israel is they got so used to relating to the law and not having a personal dynamic relationship with God that what ends up happening is, is when the relationship with God is offered back to them, they're afraid to let go of the relationship with the law because it's been a nanny and it's been a guardian, but they like kind of the control of being able to just say like, all right, I just want to try to do what's right and wrong, but beyond that, do what I feel like doing. 
See, there's a big difference between when you have the babysitter. The babysitter, essentially, if, we, if you leave the kids with the babysitter, that, what that means is, is like the kids are going to kind of do what they want to do. You don't have to worry about entertaining them. They're going to find ways. Just keep the basics in place, right? Don't let them completely tear the house apart. Like, don't let them kill each other, you know, that sort of thing. We're not asking the babysitter to necessarily, like, raise our children or to teach them to to fulfill their great dreams or to educate them. We're just saying, like, don't let them die, you know? Like, that kind of thing. We need a night out. Don't let the kids die, please, you know, and don't let them kill each other. When we come back, we don't want to see blood. We do understand we'll see some craziness in the house or whatever, but that's your job, you know, just, just that. And God's saying, like, that's about all the law was really good for. That's what it was there for. Because in the beginning, there was this great temptation that was given in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, what we wanted to do was we wanted to have morality without having dependence. I wanted to be able to be good without having to depend on God. I wanted to know right from wrong and be in control of that myself and be the one like every kid wants at some point in their life where I don't want you to tell me what's right and wrong. I got this. And that's what we wanted. And so what the law is, is while we're figuring it out on our own, God puts basic parameters in place and says, all right, here's a babysitter. Go have fun and see how that works out for you. And eventually you're going to desire a relationship with me because that's what you were made for. And I'm loving you and waiting and can't wait until you want that relationship again because I want it too. But in the meantime, there's the law. The babysitter's here. But what happens with the babysitter is what we, you know, we just got this dog, right? It's so funny with our dog right now because it's a puppy and it's got like pure energy and it's like shaking with energy. And when we're like, don't jump. You know, like one of our biggest rules is like when someone comes to the house, don't jump on them. Like don't jump, like down, you know. And Casey will sit there and she'll be like running in circles trying not to jump. And she'll like swing her arm. And then she'll even like jump in the air but not jump on the person and almost like do a backflip, like just freaking out because she wants so bad to jump up on the person but no, she's not allowed to. When you have a, a pet well-trained, well-trained, it means that the urges inside of the pet are being disciplined because of some other reason that they're trained. That's the best the law can do, is it can hold us back from doing what we really want to do. That's what the law is there for. What I really want to do is this and this and this, but the law is there to keep me from that. That's not what we were made for. And that's not who God is in our life. God is not the one to keep us from doing what we really want to do. God is, our relationship with God is not about restriction. Our relationship with God is about flourishing. It's about life and life abundant. The law is saying when we're running away from God because we think we know better than God, he'll put the law in place to keep us from ruining ourselves. But ultimately what God wants is for our full destiny to be unleashed and his design for our lives to be just exploding everywhere as we're thriving in a relationship with God. He said, you can have the babysitter if you want, but it's not going to lead to life. Eventually, you're going to hate whatever rules there are there. 
as long as you're chasing after what, as long as you are the definer of what's right and wrong, as long as you're living for yourself, as long as you're still taking that fruit in the garden and saying, I want this without you. But when a heart turns back to God and says, I just want to be with you, then get another picture of a child. Picture that little kid who looks at mom and dad, loves mom and dad, and walks around mimicking them, you know, carrying their briefcase around like mom or dad, you know, getting the tools out and, and working with dad, you know, being in the kitchen and, and, and doing what they're, you know, wanting to make the food and do all that stuff, you know, like a child who's enthralled with mom and dad and just wants to be with them. When all of a sudden the things that are like, oh, I have to do this or I can't do this. Instead, it's like, I get to do this with mom or dad. That's a relationship with God. That's what it means to have childlike faith. That's what it means. And when God says that he can justify us, it means that he can put all things right. And the main thing that he needs to put right and the main thing he wants to put right is our hearts. Because there was a law that was out there in letters on stone. But the promise of the gospel is that he will write the law on our hearts. Which means he will change the core desires of my life. And he will transform me from the inside out. And he will tell me that instead of yearning to do all that is wrong, God will change my heart and make it so that I yearn for him more than anything else. That's the gospel. And that's an awesome awesome gospel. What had happened in this situation was that there was this lie that started creeping in. And it happens in religion constantly. It's the big lie of religion. And there is a huge lie in religion. And the lie is that we're somehow better if we do better. There's something about me that is better if I do better. It's a performance-based thing. It's that I still want to take from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, and I still want to judge myself based on how good I'm doing, and then I, my emotions, how I feel about myself, how I view myself, all of those things are me judging myself based on my own performance, and that's the lie of religion. Anytime you think that or feel that, we're falling into the same trap that the Galatians fell into. Because the gospel is this, that our righteousness is as filthy rags. We got nothing. We got nothing at all. And the truth is, is that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. God created us in his image to glorify him. Glorify means that we look like him. We look like him. That we do the things that look like him. A week and a day ago, we were in here having a service and uh, we were uh, in hearing testimonies about Dale Hutziger's life. And when we were hearing about his life, you could hear the glory of God being revealed through the stories about his life. And you knew his character because of the stories and you could watch it in his children. And we are the children of God. And we reveal that in how we live. Our danger is that we think, 
We got to prove something to God by performing and living like that. But the opposite of that is when we know that we are loved by God and that we enjoy that relationship, we naturally start to live like dad, you know? And there's a subtle difference there that's all the difference in the world. One is this heavy ball and chain of I can never quite live up to what God wants for me and I'm always a little disappointed in myself, so I'll try harder. And the other is, man, God just loves me and I love him and I want to be with him. And it becomes very natural that we start to live in the reality of who God is. We had this question. I, I used to um, uh, engage in, in evangelism in the streets a lot, both in Pottstown and in Chicago, just going around and talking to people about their faith. And there was these two questions that we would always ask people. One, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? Kind of a tough question, right? Uh, and do you know for sure where you'd spend eternity? Yesterday, um, we were standing in front of a tombstone, um, and it was, and it said, Glenn Ritzman and Doris Ritzman. They're my wife's parents, you know? And we're looking at this tombstone, and uh, this week it's been two years since Glenn passed away. And so we're standing there, and as we're, as a family, including Casey, <laughs> um, here uh, looking at it, we are declaring that we know, that we know, that we know that these graves will be empty because they will rise from the dead because we are told that the dead in Christ shall rise first and that we have not seen the last of Jen's parents. We have not seen the last of them. That's not just that their spirits are out there hovering somewhere and we'll go into some alternate reality where spirits kind of elusively... The dead in Christ will rise and they will gain new bodies and we will see them and we will walk with them and we will live on the new earth with them. And I believe that not because it's some fantasy or because it makes me feel better, but because the scriptures say it and Jesus spoke it and he was the first to rise. And others are going to be the same way. So when we ask, do you know where you'll spend eternity? That's a very real question. It's not a theoretical question. And I put that question to us today. Do you know where you'll spend eternity? Do you know? And the second question that kind of helped us understand um, in our conversations where we're coming from as far as our understanding of our relationship with God was this question. So if you were to die today and you go before the pearly gates and St. Peter meets you there or whatever the picture is you have in your head, but you were to stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Why should, should you have eternal life? How, how would you respond to that? How would you answer that? And 99% of the answers that we would receive when we would ask those questions had something to do with the lie of religion. Something to do with the knowledge of good and evil. Said something about, I hope that I did more good than I did bad. Or I tried to do the right thing. God, let me in because I think I'm relatively a good person and I tried to live by my conscience and all of those things. And, and yet that is the lie of religion. And it's the thing that burdens us down, that always leaves that question in the back of our mind that says, I don't know if I'm actually good enough to be approved by God or to be let off the hook for the things that I've done bad. 
And all of that, like at its very best, it means I might have done enough to get approval from God or a, a free pass from God. When in actuality, what God wants for us is a living, dynamic, flourishing relationship with him that has nothing to do with did we pass the cut or not, but do we get to live in the fullness of what he's designed for us. And we get stuck trying to live down here, getting the approval of God, when approval is a foregone conclusion in Christ. That should be done and settled. We should never think about it again. He has paid the price for our sins. That is forgiven. It's done. We should never again entertain the thought that we are not approved by God, that we are not accepted by God, that we are not validated by God, that God doesn't love us and that God doesn't want us. That should never be a question again in our life. Where we're going to spend eternity is where I'm spending my day today with God. And that's the, that's the way the gospel's supposed to work in our lives. But the subtlety, the subtlety and the deception that comes into our mind is very, very, very tricky. And it happened to the Galatians. I want you to look at this um, slide here. And I've shown this to you a number of times. This is kind of how it works. We... Self-indulge. They wanted the fruit, right? And um, I didn't turn it back on. There it is. Cheyenne, you're a genius. Foolish Galatian, genius Cheyenne. We self-indulge. In the garden, they wanted things their way, so they indulged. What happened? They ended up self-loathing and hiding behind the tree and figure, you know, covering themselves up. And this is what we do. We do things our way instead of pursuing God, and then we feel bad, so we try to hide that. And we try to hide that in two ways. One is we try to have more experiences that help us drown our sorrows away, so we self-medicate. We do more things that make us feel better, whether they're good things that, you know, or whether they're just harmful things, and we get in that tight cycle of addiction. Or we stop and we self-evaluate and we say, this isn't working, this is becoming self-destructive, and then we try to self-improve. And if we do actually improve, then we get pride. And you know, before a haughty spirit, and, or after, if we have a haughty spirit or if we have pride, then we are told that leads to a fall. It leads to destruction. And so what ends up happening is, is this cycle keeps going. And all the religions of the world, right here, they make their money and they say, look at yourself. Look, are you doing good? You got to get better. You got to work harder so you can feel better about yourself. That is the moneymaker for all religions and the lie of all religions. There is one other option. There is something far greater than religion. There's actually a living God. And the living God says, you don't have a prayer of impressing me. <laughs> I showed you the law to show you what the rules of my house are and you failed miserably to submit to the babysitter's laws, you know? And that's not even the beginning of who I am. There's no way you're going to be like me by trying hard. This is what you need to know. I took care of all that. I am a just God who punishes sin and I took the punishment on myself when I hung on a cross. Let that be enough for you. Don't try to improve on that. Let that be enough for you. It's covered. Now, let's be good again. I don't mean be good like we're being good people. Let's be good in the relationship again. Let's enjoy one another again. 
Let's get back to actually relating. I have your best interest in mind. I'm not trying to restrict you. I'm trying to give you everything, the entire inheritance of the living God. I'm trying to give it to you. So this is uh, our, our questions as we would ask people on the street, you know, what would you say um, if you stood in front of God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Obviously, anything that was based on our performance is not going to be helpful. Um, and, and we would say, well, how does God in his justice still let us off the hook? He can't just say, yeah, it's good, no, worry, no worries. And of course, there's that picture of the just judge and the bank robber who's stolen all this money, comes and brings all the money and drops it in front of the judge and he says, here's your money back, we're good, and then rolls out. No, of course we're not good. There actually has to be justice. And this is when Jesus, our lawyer, shows up and he says, I will take the punishment for them. And he takes the fullness of our punishment for us so that God's justice remains. The fellowship with God can still be intact. Jesus takes the retribution and the consequences of our sin. And then there's the question about in our lives, are we living as if we're trusting God or are we living as if we're trusting ourselves? And Paul will talk more about that in chapters to come. But here's the analogy that we always talk to people about. And it's, uh, you're on the river. And you've heard me talk about this before if you've been here for any length of time. You're on the river and you're in your kayak or your canoe. And you're paddling downstream. And the pace of the river is picking up. And you start to hear distant thunder. And you start to see a mist in front of you. And you start to realize that you're headed toward a waterfall. And you turn around and you start paddling with everything inside of you to come back against the flow of the water. But it is pulling you down faster than you can paddle upstream. And in the middle of that paddling, you start to realize, I am going over that waterfall. The river is time. And it will keep flowing. And we only have a limited amount. And it will be more powerful than we are. And we cannot fight the wave of time. And at the end of what we know of time is this thing that we all face, which is the end of our time on earth in this body. It's called death. And all of us face it. And we might try to paddle doing everything we can to save the time, to do everything we can to make sure we're okay and and to protect ourselves from that thing without looking at it. We don't even want to look at it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. And in the middle of that madness, Jesus comes up, whipping up next to us in the speedboat. And he says, give me your hand. And what happens to the church in Galatia is they're so freaked out trying to paddle. They don't even know that he's there. And he's like, just give me your hand. It's fine. Like, this is good. I can like jump that thing, man. Like, we're good, you know. But they can't because they're so used to like, uh, 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 that they can't just set down the paddle and reach out and grab his hand. We live our lives as if they depend on us. And if we are living our lives as if they depend on us, if when we go to work, we think my main job is to do a good job so that I get a paycheck so that I can take care of my family and I go into work and I'm stressed and I'm exhausted and I'm not living as if God's in charge of work, then I'm not living gospel life. I'm not realizing how free life can be. 
You know, if I'm living in that place when it comes to parenting because I'm freaking out because I don't know if I'm going to be able to raise my kids the right way, and I, like, and I'm not in a place of just prayer and resting God and trust in Him, then I'm not living gospel life. Gospel life is I'm putting my paddle down, and my one thing that I want with life is in every situation, I want to walk with God because He's got this. He's got this. That's a walk with Jesus. And that's what they had lost sight of in the gospel. And their minds had subtly started to think that those who do better are better. So I better start doing better. That's the lie. And it'll get us every time. It'll bite us every time. It's a false gospel and it hurts us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the gospel of faith. I thank you that, <laughs> this is the picture in my mind as I'm praying, is we're, you have us standing on the gold medal stand in the Olympics. Standing on the gold medal stand. We got the, the medal around our neck, big shining gold. There's the music's playing. Everything's going, you know, like there's the cheer, there's the roar. And at the front and center, we see our Father in heaven clapping and cheering and saying, that's my kid. That's my kid. And we don't get there because we did it right. We get there because you did it right. And you love us. And we're already on that stand. And you're already cheering. God, I ask that any lie that says we got to perform for you or perform for others, that you would just like help us to get past that and to remember the gospel. That you meet us like the, like the prodigal son when the father comes running out and puts a ring on his finger and a robe around him, not because of anything he did, but because he was loved. He was loved. We are loved by you. God, I ask that you would make for each and every one of us right now that you would give us faith because we come to our relationship with you. We acknowledge the fact that what your scriptures say and what we want to embody is that our primary job is not to do the works and the performance of religion, that our primary job is to have faith, to trust you, that you love us. May we know and experience and believe and trust your love for us more than anything else. May our primary work be to trust that you love us. May we set aside anything else in our life to simply believe and trust that you love us. And in our encounter of your love, God, would you change us and then make us like you. Make us like you. Thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.